Hello, my name's Jerry Padfield and you're listening to my PhD cast. to PhD casting episode 9 which represents quarter 9 of my PhD or year 3 quarter 1. I have three years of funding so this is kind of the last year of my PhD and I really want to be finished within the funding time if at all possible because I want to I don't want to be working and trying to complete a thesis at the same time. Uh, I've called this episode adaptation and not only is it one of my favorite films but it's also a requirement on a PhD. And so I'll be talking more about that in a moment, but, and also later in the show, I'll be talking to Dr. Josephine Coleman of Brunel University London, uh, who's an academic, about community radio research and the pandemic. And also she'll be offering some very good tips about how to survive a PhD. So at the end of last episode, I was talking about the practice and how I was in full swing with that. And that um, basically I, plan to use these last three months as a way of kind of stepping back from the practice, completing it, and then using a couple of months of reflection um, to kind of work out where I stand with the practice, and then to also work on some writing up, start getting my thesis together, the framework, the introduction, the literature review, things like that. So I'd be a bit ahead of the game when I need to do the final writing up of the thesis um, towards the end of this year. As so often happens in life, uh, things didn't quite turn out as I planned and I had a major kind of uh, change of life circumstances. I had to find somewhere to live. I've been living out of suitcases. Um, and basically I've just been trying to keep my head above water and, and do the kind of the basics that I needed to do to keep the PhD going, which I have done. I have finished the first round of practice. That's gone very well. And I have been able to reflect on that, obviously, because, you know, your mind never really switches off um, about the things that you're doing in your in your practice. Also, as part of this time, I've had quite a success in the Mexico Radio Studies Network, which I've talked about, and I'm now the Early Career Researcher Development Officer, and I am working towards submitting some papers. I'm going to be published, hopefully, in this next year. But when I was thinking about the need, the kind of adaptation that I needed to make in my own life, it set me thinking about the process of a PhD um, anyway, and the need to adapt at all times during a PhD, whether it's because of personal life issues or because of your research. Because I guess when you come into a PhD, maybe you think, well, I'll come up with this really great idea and then I'll spend three years working on that idea and write it up and hand it in. But that's really not what's going to happen. Whatever your idea is at the beginning, it's bound to evolve. And that is really actually the nature of a PhD. It's not a kind of failure. It's kind of built into the whole process. If you do research and you have an idea and you test things out, Something's going to work, some things aren't. And so you have to adapt to these things uh, as a nature, as the nature of what you're doing. And so I just wanted to stress for this rather short introduction to the interview, don't feel like your PhD is a static thing where you don't know 
well you know what you're doing and you proceed with it and you reach the end goal and there it goes you hand it in i started off with about four or five projects that i had in mind a couple of which have come to fruition and they've both both of those have changed quite substantially and some others which didn't work and some other things which uh, turned up which i had never thought of at the beginning of my phd so that's a, that's the process you need to adapt you need to change you need to constantly be evolving if you read a new piece of work it could, ch could totally change your mindset about how you view your field and so you need to adapt to that too this episode I was joined by Dr. Josephine Coleman, who is an academic at Brunel University, who's published research on community radio in the UK, particularly around journalism, and we talked about all things community radio. Today I'm joined by Dr. Josephine Coleman, who is a lecturer in media and public relations at Brunel University. She's a recent PhD uh, graduate from Birkbeck University of London. She's a member of the Mexa Radio Studies Network, and she basically helps keep the whole thing running and is doing lots of uh, research into community radio which is something we have in common isn't it joe and that's my first question is basically how do you see the state of community radio in the uk at the moment yes that is an interesting question because at the moment we're all reeling aren't we and i know every organization and every person who's trying to keep any sort of business going is is struggling unless you're in home delivery or <laughs> food food and um, creating audiovisual entertainment for people to to stream at home. Um, I think the special thing about community radio is that it is almost totally reliant on volunteers, and I did do research in June. And I found that they had been very uh, creative and come up with innovative ideas as to how to get around the fact that most of the studios were closing and they managed to continue to broadcast and continue to transmit programmes. But obviously the problems that were beginning were the drastic reduction in income because a lot of the community stations are either allowed to sell a small amount of advertising or um, they are running charity shops or training schemes and stuff like that. And of course, the pandemic has, has stopped a lot of that happening. So, you know, I, I was amazed and impressed by the people's reports when I spoke to them and, and did the research and most of the stations I'm sure are still on air and I, I, I am in awe but at the same time slightly concerned about their long-term prospects. I don't know about you but uh, you know through doing some you know talking to station managers as you do when you research in these things you it can be quite easy when you're involved as a practitioner as you are as well and, and myself to kind of just see the problems with community radio and feel a bit down on it and you know that's kind of the nature of where my phd came from so but when you talk to these station managers and you just hear from all around the country that there's all these projects they're doing and there's this you know the social gain stuff and going into the community and giving people a voice it does kind of remind you of, of you know why why i got into community radio in the first place you know it is doing oh, yeah. lots of really good stuff in the uk isn't it yeah yeah it's absolutely brilliant and, and i know uh, the, the other thing that happens when you're involved in an activity like this it can be quite niche yeah. and there can be a lot of people that that you meet in your neighborhood who have no idea that there's a community radio station yeah. <laughs> and you think how can you not know because we do such important work um 
but I think that's that's the nature of it as well. But I think there's so much potential for community radio stations in particular to, to really get embedded in their communities and become much better known and, and be relied upon more because they can provide a really really great entertainment but also quite an important service in terms of just keeping people in touch and up to date on what's happening locally well i guess this is a whole there's a very big uh, i guess risk and opportunity here at the moment isn't there because local radio in the uk is going through some massive changes and i mean it seems it appears to me maybe you you might have a different opinion but it's, it almost seems like community radio is being positioned to kind of take over what you know independent radio and bbc local radio were doing by default but without being supported financially have you any thoughts on that yeah i i did do some sort of deeper research in that recently for a, a little book that i've got coming out um and there there is evidence that would suggest that the community radio scheme was all about providing very local radio services, even more local than what the BBC local stations could achieve. Um, and in a way, it was to sort of make up for what some of the bigger commercial radio organisations were doing, which was taking advantage, and, and why not, uh, of the relaxation of of the guidelines set down by the licensing authorities at the time and you know we're, we're, we're becoming bigger networks of radio stations and saving money by networking their shows and pooling their reporters in one big hub rather than having lots of little um, local collecting hubs so yeah I, I think it has become a scenario where someone somewhere is looking at the map of the UK thinking, oh, this that's good because we have provided for local radio in all of these little places. Look how mm. great it is. Uh, a lot of them are, are for geographic communities. Um, in the bigger cities, you've got uh, a number of community stations which are maybe in the same area, but they can cater for different ethnic groups or specialist interests. So a, a job has been done and... and um, you might almost think you could tick a box, but you're, you're right. There's, there's not much support um, backing up the, the sustaining of, of these very local radio broadcasting services. I mean, we'll see what happens when the digital, the mini small-scale digital rollout happens as well. I, I hope we don't lose the FM and AM yeah. frequencies. There's something about FM, isn't there, or just you know that kind of way of broadcasting that remains unique and and sort of special i think well <laughs> i th i think it, it it will ultimately depend on what people are using to listen to your radio station on really i mean i would say as a yeah. as a user i get such a hit uh kick or whatever sitting in a car going through the dial and thinking, oh, it's this station. And then you just do a little retune and you get to the next one. I love all of that. But you see, you can do that on, on digital now. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, in theory, there's a difference in the sound quality, perhaps. Um, I have to say digital DAB signals aren't as good as going through uh, uh, thick walls and <laughs> going around corners. 
as the yeah. FM signals are. I don't know what that's about. I'm not. I'm not that sort of technical person. But um, yeah, long live FM at the moment is my my <laughs> saying. Well, let's let's speculate a bit because can you? I mean, we're obviously we're in the middle of this huge event, but so it's hard to say one way or the other. But surely. You've talked about community radio stations, you know, doing well and adapting, but long term, you know, a bit like with the mental health impact of the pandemic, you know, there's going to be an impact on community radio. Some stations are going to disappear, aren't they? And and there, ha there will have to either be more support or less stations at some point in the future, won't there? Uh, that's that's really hard to say. Um, you know, at the moment, you have to pay. Ofcom for your license and you have to pay um, other licenses for any software that you might use if, if you're not using open source free stuff. Uh, you have to pay for your premises unless you've got a really good deal on it. Um, so th there are ways that you could potentially be supported by a benefactor, aren't there, still, really? So you could mm. still maybe find someone to house all your equipment. You could maybe find someone to cough up several hundred pounds a year for your license to Ofcom, several hundred pounds for your other licenses. Maybe you could get someone to fund how much it costs you to rent the transmitter on the site where the actual signal's being broadcast from. You know, maybe it's it's if you're not paying anybody, maybe you could get it down to a few thousand pounds. And maybe you could get some donations for that. I don't know, but I, I would hate to see us in a situation where the states have been, the United States with NPR, all their national public radio, where they do these funding drives routinely. I'm, I'm not sure we're as good as um, they are in America at, at putting up with having content to listen to on the radio and being told to pick up the phone and donate 10 quid i'm not i'm not sure we we're, we're wired that way but may, maybe some stations do do that i have heard some stations here trying to raise money in that uh, way i don't think anything is impossible i think if you can imagine it and you can see yeah. it happening somewhere else anywhere in the world i think our system of community radio here is so diverse um that as long as it was legal, I think you <laughs> you could look at any right. any any way of keeping going. I I think while the will is there, there's a way. Right, and that people are very uh, adaptable, aren't they? And and innovative in terms of working out how to survive. It seems. I mean, look, you know, people have just been doing shows from home. Listeners have been mm. hearing content even on the big national stations, where you know you might hear someone receive an email message or you know someone in the background shutting a door you know <laughs> anything goes at the moment you've, you've just recently published some research about uk community radio uh, in response to covid19 what are some kind of highlights for you in, in your research that you found so i i contacted all the radio stations that are community licenses and that was about 295, and I had 44 responses. Um, so, you know, I didn't, I didn't sort of 
I chased a couple of people who I thought, I really want someone from Wales. Nobody's, nobody's, you know, and, and I and I had arranged um, an interview, but things fall through because people are, are busy. So, so uh, you know, as much yeah. as I could get, it was, you know, kind of a representative illustration is what we always have to say in qualitative research anyway. So of those 44 respondents, and again, this is just indicative um there there were signs that that things had changed for the different stations in very different ways so for some of the people some of the managers i asked for managers to respond some of them had had found that their involvement with the station had suddenly increased a lot so that was like you know almost half said it you know they were putting in a lot more time whereas others were saying it yeah. had reduced a lot so there wasn't any sort of fixed answer and i think it just goes to show that, that there's so much variety in the different relationships with with the stations that practitioners and managers have um there was one of the questions that i asked which was had their programming stayed the same did, did it sound did, did the output sound the same and there was evidence that a lot of them had managed to keep the same format. So a lot of the programmes were actually sounding very similar to how they would normally yeah. sound, um, even though a lot of those programmes were being done from home. I asked them what they felt the main considerations were when they were deciding which programs they could keep on air, which presenters they could keep on air. And the, the biggest consideration was if people were able to use the, the right kind of software. So nine, for 93% of my respondents, um, the ability to use the appropriate software was the most important um, aspect. And obviously access to the internet, if you're relying on your volunteers producing their radio content from home they've got to have access to the internet that was important and actually possessing those digital devices that all of a sudden we were relying on like the laptops or even the smartphones or the decent microphone and 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 actually something else which i know has become uh, so noticeable as i mentioned a bit earlier is that ability to find time and space at home where you can be quiet and quiet enough for as long as it takes to record your show yeah there's there is a sort of a digital divide though isn't there in terms of that at my station um source fm there are there's definitely presenters who've kind of leapt on the opportunity to even you know enhance their shows and because with pre-recording you know you get the opportunity to edit and and go a bit more kind of uh in depth if you like in terms of the production but and then but then there's also people who are like well i don't want to do do it on a computer and i you know and for them it's like going into the studio is is once a week or however often they do a show is um you know like the highlight of their week and that's that's what it's all about is going in the studio performing a show and so it's it's been a very mixed response hasn't it it, it has exactly and some managers did say that they were sad because they had had to put some volunteers on hold or like you say some volunteers had voluntarily put themselves on hold they just felt they couldn't do this but there has been training 
you know there have been yeah. um you know efforts made to to help volunteers who who are open to doing things in a new way yeah definitely well just changing the subject slightly as a stressed out uh, third year phd student i i know that you uh, you graduated you got your phd last year am i right in saying so uh oddly the lockdown for me pushed me to the to the finishing line basically i uh. i had it in my head that i wanted to have completed my phd by I suppose the end of 2020 that was sort of in my head was was the deadline and I had another whole year yeah. ahead at, at Birkbeck and I was looking forward to that because we had a great practice-based research community there as well um, and I had really strong yeah. theoretical support from both my supervisors Tim Markham and, and Scott Rogers you know I was, I was happy there um, and I and I actually enjoyed doing the, the whole PhD so <laughs> it probably could have gone on forever yeah but but when COVID struck and lockdown happened, I suddenly realised there was a whole new research project that I, I really had to do. Mm. So I just thought, you know what, I can't I, right. I actually I have to finish the PhD. I know what I've I know. You know, I just need to articulate it now. I need to finish the writing up. I need to just, you know, put that final full stop and I need to submit because I have to get back out there and do some fresh research to see how the stations are managing. And that's so that's what happened, basically. So I submitted um, around about the May time and had started yeah. planning this other COVID research. And the main questionnaire I did for that was in June. So, yeah, so that's that's what happened. It was, it was a real boot up the bum. How did you find the whole kind of PhD process? Because, I mean, I don't know what it was like for you, but as for me you know you have when you come into the thing you kind of think you have an idea in your head of what a phd is and then what the reality is is often extremely different at least it was for me yeah i've i actually did some thinking this morning and i came up w with a list of eight <laughs> tips i suppose and and i'm calling them the eight r's so i've got read record review reveal reflect, revise, revel, and write and rewrite. Maybe it should be rewrite because that begins right. with an R. So I should begin at the beginning. Yeah, please. The reading is so important. I know a lot of people will have done reading and sorted out their conceptual framings, etc., in their masters before they embark on their PhD. I, I didn't. I, I had done a master's and it was on radio docudrama and it was slightly different. So I had a whole load of new reading that I had to do. And what I would say actually in a way is, is you'll probably be reading most of the way through the research that you're doing, especially if you're doing it over a period of time. I, I did mine part-time, yeah. which could be six, seven years. And people are publishing stuff in that time, and you've got to, to keep abreast of it if you can. So, so reading is important. Um, and I did also have it fairly fixed in my head what my title was going to be right from the beginning. But you have to be open to that changing. 
Yeah. Now, some people will fix a title and have a colon, and then what comes after the colon evolves. Other people would do it the other way around. They might have that fixed aim, those overall objectives. They might be pretty well fixed to begin with and all the way through, and then they they come up with their final title at the end. But, you know, but it, it's having that flexibility as you go through. And then the, the, mm-hmm. my second tip, beginning with R, was record. So this was keeping a journal, really, of where I was at in terms of my thinking through what my thesis was about. Because, you know, I, I tried out a few different theoretical frameworks, you know, tried them out for size, tested them, wrote essays on, I wrote an essay on rhizomatic theory and how it um, <laughs> how it might be useful. And I know you've talked about using the rhizome. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I decided against it, but at least I'd flexed that little muscle just to see if it was going to work for me. Um, and so review, review is the third R, review how your thoughts are taking shape regularly, you know, how you're starting to make sense of your practice. And I suppose I'm thinking specifically of of these PhDs where we are looking at practice or doing our research through practice. Is when when, when you're looking at how people do things and you're trying to make sense of that and describe it in an intellectual way, you're, you're constantly trying to find the right words and... Uh, to, to describe things so that it, it makes sense to suit your argument, which you're going to be making. Yeah. And then the opportunities that we had, certainly at Birkbeck, we had a little group called Corkscrew, and they used to do regular, <coughs> excuse me, they used to do regular show and tell seminars. And, and I would say, take any opportunity you can to reveal what your thoughts are, reveal and share your ideas. And, take the opportunity to discuss them with your friends who are studying with you or or colleagues try them out try out your theories and and your findings you know present take any opportunity to present at a conference you know there's quite a few postgraduate conferences around on various themes and I got into quite a, a a busy schedule of of going to different conferences and turning my thesis into something slightly different just so that I could put a slideshow together so that I I could apply to go to a a particular conference just because you need that opportunity to to stand up in front of people and talk things through and listen to the feedback and then reflect on that feedback you know be open to to a slight change of direction and then I'm down to number six now, I think. Revise, be prepared to rejig. You might you might have to adjust your conceptual framework. And if you're if you're looking at someone else's practice, you might want to change how you're looking at it, change your perspective. Um, you know, maybe you weren't doing interviews, maybe you now need to do interviews, maybe you were doing participant observation. Maybe you need to to do a bit of practice yourself. Um, and then seven, revel. Revel in your research. Enjoy it. 
that's what a doctor of philosophy is all about. We're doing it because we love it. And I have to say, we're not we're not necessarily doing it because we love academia. We're doing it because we love the, the subject that we're studying. We love the topic. You know, and the last one, yeah, is rewrite. It's a constant process of rewriting everything <laughs> over and over again. Well, that's a really thorough kind of um, analysis of the PhD. Uh, thanks for that, Joe. I think it aligns with a lot of my experience, although I haven't uh, maybe summarised it as uh, succinctly as that in my head quite yet. Maybe it'll take me a little while after the PhD to kind of be able to um, think about it so um, coherently. You need the perspective, don't you? you know? Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm looking forward to that perspective, I have to say. Are you, are you kind of relieved the whole thing's over now and you've, it's under your belt? Yes, although any any good supervisor will tell you that you can get at least two journal articles out of your PhD, if not a monograph published. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I suppose that feeling that it's not all over is quite good because you, you don't want to experience that. Yes, there's a sensation that you've achieved something so you can tick the box. But if you've been obsessing about it, you want to kind of avoid that feeling of grief as well when something that's been so all-consuming is finished and kind of so don't don't feel like that just see it as as uh that there's another step to come after you've completed oh of course because you've got to defend your thesis of course don't <laughs> just because you've published it or uploaded it it's um you've got to defend it with your examiners when you were talking about revealing there and you were talking about going to conferences and that, that what occurred to me is that's where i met you and it's been um that was in sterling in scotland for the mexa conference and the radio that's where i met the radio studies network and um got involved with that whole thing and um yeah it's been a real i mean that came just from basically like you're saying just applying to a conference but uh adapting my research slightly so that i could talk about one aspect of it in a 20 minutes or sort of presentation and just from that kind of one act of just going for it it's, it's led to um you know so many networking opportunities as i'm sure you're aware that's probably you know how you first got involved is it yeah yeah absolutely and at the time you kind of think wow that was lucky or that was fortunate but it's not you know you like you did you you, you took up the baton, you know, you thought, yeah, I can do this. And you pitched up and you, you gave your talk and you got involved and you've been helping organise our MEXA radio studies online reading group for the last year. And, and you've now turned into the early career researcher development officer and, you know, it's something for your CV. And Well, let's talk about the, uh, the Radio Studies Network reading group and the Radio Studies Network, I guess, because, I mean, you are, uh, are kind of like the beating heart of the whole thing aren't you kind of even if you know you don't have the you know, the chair anymore you you're kind of behind the scenes constantly making sure everyone is in touch with each other and um uh, all of that kind of thing so you must have almost more knowledge of that whole thing than anyone else i would imagine um gosh well i i, I haven't been in the radio studies community for as long as a lot of our members I will say that. So I think I've still got a lot to learn. But what an amazing group of people, really. Yeah. You know, radio studies was was happening since 
radio began. We, we know this, but it, it had quite a low profile for a few decades last century. Um, and then a whole bunch of people joined academia, uh, a lot of them from active careers in radio broadcasting and, you know, really worked very hard to, to get the academic discipline of radio studies up and, and running um, and have managed to do so since the late 90s. So we, we have a lot to thank them for. And it has to be said, it's a very friendly group, isn't it? Because it, radio studies, I guess, is not the most glamorous part of uh, media studies, you know, film, television, um, probably the, the ones that everyone thinks of. That be, there's a bit of kind of people are protective of each other, aren't they? <laughs> that oh, there's another one of us that's actually doing radio, and and you're welcomed in and kind of uh, encouraged more than anything. There's not, not I've never felt like there's sort of, sort of competitive or you know trying to put other people down kind of feeling around the whole experience. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. I don't I don't know if that's the attitude of of the underdog. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a very constructive, supportive environment. And at, if, if you're fortunate enough to, to be able to afford to go to an international conference and you meet international radio studies scholars from Brazil or Africa or India, you know, Asia, it, it, Australia, you know, it's funny. They are very cut from the same cloth, very similar which is quite an odd thing to say, but I, I'll, I'll never forget when I moved to the States for a couple of years and I was looking for work experience and I walked into, um, I think it was probably a commercial local radio station over there and I looked around the room and I was staggered because I could I could identify who the salesperson was, who the engineer was, <laughs> who the receptionist was and who the presenters were, you know, yeah. and, and I don't want to stereotype anyone. But, you know, I think there's a certain attitude and a kind of way that people move around a radio station and how just how they are in the world. Um, and it's common around the world, I would say, you know, how, how you are as a radio person, how you how you live your life as, as some sort of a radio practitioner involved in the industry. And I'm sure you could say that about any industry, but um, because radio is mine, I suppose I'm particularly sensitive to it. Well, if there's anybody listening who is a uh, early career researcher in radio studies, what would you say to get them involved in, in the whole Mexa Radio Studies Network and the reading group? Well, we are on Facebook, which um, my children tell me Facebook is only for old people, um, but I can uh, guarantee that there are <laughs> other generations on Facebook. So the Mexa Radio Studies Network has a Facebook page and we're also on Twitter and we have our little blog for the online reading group which I try to keep up to date as communications officer. And we usually post what we're doing and what readings we've got coming up and when we're going to be doing our discussions on, on those social media. There's also a big global radio studies email list, which I would recommend going on. And it's JISC Mail, J-I-S-C, JISC Mail. 
And in fact, you can set up if you're if you're a researcher and you have not yet set up your JISC mail account. I do recommend it because there are lots and lots of interest groups on there. I mean, there are two or three podcast groups I've noticed that have started up recently. Um, well, I say over the last few years, yeah. I think one of them in particular is, is now the active one. But, you know, if you're interested in the history of the BBC, they've got one on there. So there's, there's our MEXA, general MEXA one, where I post stuff about us. And then there's the big global radio studies one where I, I sneak in and post MEXA radio studies stuff on there as well. But, you know, we're not, we, although MEXA is a UK scholarly body, we, we, in the radio studies network for MEXA, are trying to encourage and um, develop radio studies in the UK, but worldwide as well. Bear, I would just say myself that it's been really rewarding for me to, as a part of the reading group, to be able to just study the, uh, or discuss papers in depth in a way that you probably don't when you just sit and read them by, by yourself. And then to be able to even question the authors. And, and we're now putting those things on YouTube so anyone can go and search for Mexis Radio Studies Network reading group on YouTube and you'll find our channel um, and it's becoming uh, hopefully it'll become quite a resource for future researchers as well yes yep hopefully we've got a couple of Q&A sessions with authors in February and March and we've also had a recent change at the of the kind of admin side of uh, or the kind of steering group side of it haven't we and there's uh, it seems like there's a bit more kind of uh momentum at the moment to, to do some good things yes yeah so we have our new chair is emma haywood from sheffield and her interest at the moment mainly has been radio and media projects and news and journalism and that sort of thing over in countries in africa and we have a new vice chair alex alexander kochik um and he is actually doing community radio like us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there, it's worth pointing out as well, there is also, like you said, podcasting, any kind of uh, radio related or you know, it, this is a whole grey area, isn't it? If podcasting, is it radio? I won't get into that. But, you know, any kind of audio broadcast yeah. type things. Yeah. Yeah. We have we have on our on our sort of committee um so we have a sort of steering group that we call a committee and we have a couple of uh, podcasters on there still. So Richard Berry, Dario uh, Linares. Yeah, so we're kind of open, open arms. <laughs> yeah. So we, to kind of wrap up, I've, we've talked about, you know, what you've done in the past and what you're doing currently, but what are your future plans? What, what have you got in the pipeline? Um so I've got the book, which I which I mentioned, which will be my gosh, my first experience of actually having a book, and I have sleepless nights wondering what it'll look like. That, Feel free to plug that. <laughs> that's a Routledge Disruptions book, and the title is Digital Innovations and the Production of Local Content in Community Radio. Right. Wow. I'm sort of involved. I do like thinking about how we study and how we research. So I'm giving a talk at Brunel as part of their Techni conference on reflexivity in practice research. So I may well try and write an article about that at some point as well, because I think practice-based and practice-led research 
is yeah. is very fruitful but i think people need a bit of help working out how to conceptualize all of that it, I, I completely agree as somebody who's doing a practice research phd uh and with a cohort of practice based phds um quite a lot of time is spent thinking about hang on a minute what is practice-based research and where does the practice begin the theory end and how do i frame this in terms of a thesis um and of course we'll have a, a chapter coming out won't we that we're yes <laughs> working on with alex so um, that's right well i'd to say thanks very much for talking to me joe and uh, uh it's been a pleasure talking to you and i hope to continue working with you for a good time to come likewise jerry i do i do find our collaborations enjoyable and worthwhile thanks joe thank you jerry